I'm going to invite you this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we are together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is, a, for me, when I think about the book of 2 Corinthians, the first chapter that pops in my mind is chapter 5. This is, this is one of those chapters that's good as a believer in Christ to be familiar with. And, and as you live the Christian life, it's one of those that uh, as you live on mission for Jesus, this, this section of the Bible should really turn over and over in your mind on what the Lord has called you to. This is a, a powerful section of Scripture. I don't want to say the most important section of all of Second Corinthians because it's, it's just an important book. But for me, if I had to pick favorites, this, this might be at the top of the list. Um, but but all, all together, the book of Second Corinthians, it, it is an incredible book when you think about living missionally for the Lord. And I've told you, with this book, some people, when they approach it, they, they kind of pass over in the New Testament, they pass over this book because this is the most personal letter Paul has written in all of the New Testament out of all his letters. Uh, this, this gets more specific to Paul's ministry than any other book. And when people read that, they think, well, I'm not the apostle Paul, you know, like I can't relate to that. But the reality is you've been called into ministry. And similar to the way Paul faced challenges in ministry, so do we. We all have concerns in the way that we pursue God in this world, and and I think it's important to see how Paul wrestles with this in his own life, and then relate it to our lives as we live in light of the Lord in the world around us. And and this chapter is especially important, because in this chapter, you're going to see that the the Corinthian church, just as the Apostle Paul, uh, they're being... um, I don't want to say forced, but let's just say they're being bullied into a particular way of living life by the culture around them. And even, even some people that have become a part of the church in Corinth, and, and they're, they're pushing an agenda contrary to what the Lord would desire for them. And, and the world has this way of working with fear and intimidation to force you to become uh, something that God doesn't call you to be. And Paul, when he approaches this chapter, he, he's recognizing that, that, the, that the, the temptation around you is to force you to conform to a mold contrary to what God desires for you. And when the world uses fear and intimidation, what we need to rest in is the sovereignty and security of God. Uh, that we need a, a bigger picture of who God is when the world around you feels great and the pressure feels like it's on you. And seeing the sovereign hand of who God is, and then seeing how great God is, finding out where we are in his arms. How secure is our position in light of who God is? In fact, at the end of, uh, in chapter four, really, um, you ever wonder what happens in the heart of a pastor when, you know, someone else is preaching? Uh, I know that we're going through the book of Second Corinthians, and I know I handed chapter four to Pastor Wayne and, and, and Pastor Lincoln as they preached the last couple weeks, and, and that, that was great, and being able to uh, have them preach through that, but in my mind, I'm like, no, not chapter four, because <laughs> like, I love chapter four, and, and I, they did a great job. I don't want to like, I listened to them while I was gone. It was great that, how they worked through that passage, but I, I just think in, in chapter four, just listen, listen to this in verse seven. Lincoln shared this last week, but it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's recognizing our lives as jars of clay. I mean, I pictured, I, I put that as the, t- the title, right, of this series. I mean, I gave him the verse that's the title of all of it, right, but this, this jars of clay is recognizing who we are in this world. Like we, we are fragile human beings. And when the world puts pressure on you with fear and intimidation, especially if you're not secure in your conviction, you're kind of swayed to follow after that. But, but in recognizing we're jars of clay, it says to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
It's to say, look, it doesn't have to be on your shoulders because there's something far greater in the sovereignty of God and his, his power and what that represents for you. And then to find your security in light of that and live through that. That way you're not intimidated by the things of this world because whatever the world might toss at you, you find, you find your life secure in Christ. And so that's where he, he brings to us in, in chapter, chapter 5. Fear of what we can lose can distract us from pursuing what we're called to in Christ. And what we have in Jesus is far more important than to let ourselves get distracted in the pressure the world might put on you and the things that you might lose to the systems of this world in light of what you have in Jesus. And as we find ourselves secure in his sovereignty, it develops within us a particular conviction that as we step, we can step confidently. And that's why the title of today was, rather than just say, don't be bullied, but, but actually has a missional perspective of, of how, how to live courageously. Uh, there's a story about um, uh, the 18th century philosopher David Hume. He was he was walking through the streets of London, and David Hume was opposed to Christianity, but he was walking through the streets of, uh, of London, and, and as he's walking, he sees one of his friends in a hurry down the road, and he asks him, well, where are you going? He says, I'm going to, to listen to George Whitfield. And, and he looks at his friend and he's like, George Whitfield's a famous Christian speaker. You don't, you don't believe any of that, do you? He says, no, but he says it with such conviction. I just want to go, I just want to go see that. And, and so he was, he was excited just to be around someone that, that walked in life with such certainty and confidence in, in who he was in light of, of who God was, even though he didn't agree. And, and, and for you as a Christian, and I think it's so important in, in our lives to, as, as there's pressure in things around, us, who are we in light of that? I just feel like we have to conform because someone says so. But where is our security as it's wrapped up in God's sovereignty? And, and this is where he starts in, in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul, Paul's going to give us two things he wants us to know, and then from that, how we're to respond. So, so Paul knows that the church is being tempted, the church is being pressured, and he just wants to step back from that and say, let's remind ourselves of these certain truths as it relates to the sovereignty and the security of God, because it's in that then we respond in light of those thoughts, because this is, this is where we find ourselves, not, not, not in the intimidation of the world, but in light of who God is. These are, these are certain things we know. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, as I lift, lift out these, these two thoughts from this passage of what we are to know, Paul gives these these broad ideas, um, very specific to the Christian life, but it's, a, it's phrased in a, in a very broad way. So I gave you my summary, and if you want to write a different summary of that, that's all right. All right? This is, what I'm saying is man's words, and, but what's more important is, is God's words here. But there's, there's something he wants us to know. Point number one in your blank. No, life in Jesus endures forever. Life in Jesus endures forever. And that's the, the pressure, the temptation of the world. This is what we find then in, in these opening verses. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul starts by giving this idea. He's con contrasting the, the things of this world that we might be afraid of losing versus what we have in Jesus. And he's saying, look, the things of this world, the best comparison I, I make, Paul's saying, is to that of a tent. If you've ever been 
camping in tents. Um, it's, it's maybe fun for some of you for about no more than a week, right? Like eventually you start dreaming about your own bed and a shower and tents are fine for just a minute, right? But Paul is saying, look, it's, it's a tent, no matter how you summarize this, it is, it is a tent. That's, in comparison to what you have in eternity, this is a tent. But what you have in Jesus, it's a house. It's a house. And so you see in these, the, the verse one, if you kind of break it up into, into two sections here, the, the, this thought in the first part of verse one, that there is this struggle and this human experience and that, that it's a tent and it's going to come to an end, Right? I mean, we're all going to face death, and at death, what are you going to have? Like, Paul's, Paul's really, he's starting to contrast, he'll, he'll build into this as we go further, but this idea of, of the greatest enemy we have in life, we need to recognize that whatever you want to hold to in life, that ultimately is coming to an end, it's a tent. And Paul even says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, um, starting in verse 44 all the way to verse 56, he's making an argument there at the, at the end of 1 Corinthians that, uh, that what we have in this life is, is temporal, it's passing away, and the greatest enemy that you ultimately face is death. I mean, Paul's going to an extreme in this example, and the things that we, we, can, uh, we battle in this world, and, and the, the greatest stakes, and the greatest stakes that you have comes down to your life, and you ultimately in death, it's the greatest enemy that we face. Uh, because through sin comes ultimately death. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 56, he gets to the end of this and he eventually says, but old death, where is your sting? Because in Christ, Paul knows that the power of death has been exhausted. Because in Jesus, Jesus brought literally the death of death. And it's demonstrated through the power of his resurrection, which is what gives us as people hope in Christ because just as he was resurrected from the grave, so we have been promised to be resurrected from the grave with him. And for all of eternity, we are secure. There is a home. What is passing away, the temporal, it's just a tent. But the second part of verse one, but in God, we, there is a building from him and Paul says this confidently, we have a building from God. It's ours to possess in Jesus. And so in that position, in that confidence of his eternity being secure, he goes on in verse 2 and he says this, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling." It gives them this place to approach the, the frustration of life, right? To be honest about it. Like, if we just look at the world around us, our soul realizes that this is not how things should be. Deep within our, our being, though we, there are things in life that we can delight in, deep within our being, we recognize that things are still broken. And he's saying, so for in this tent, then we groan, longing for what we ultimately have in Christ. And this idea of groaning is not this word for just complaining. Oh, grumble, grumble, bad, 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 right? That's, that's not what he's saying here. But this word for groaning is actually this word for anticipation, that things aren't where they should be, but we're looking forward to where they're intended to go. It's this groaning in our soul for more. 
And Paul's identifying for our life that we, we recognize that even when we walk in the tent of what life is, that this is not how things are supposed to be. In, in fact, um, some, of the, some of the greatest naysayers of Christianity, some of the things that have led them to come to Christ is, is to recognize the frustration within our soul that, that life is intended for something greater. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis used to say, if we find ourselves discontent with the way things are in this world, it's to recognize that we were intended not for this world, but for something more. Uh, C.S. Lewis was uh, opposed to Christianity. He walked as an agnostic or an atheist at certain points of his life. Uh, but he came to this place and realizing the own groaning in his soul. He says this, he, and he wrote about it in Mere Christianity. He referred to himself as the most reluctant believer in all of England when he put his faith in Christ. But he, but he said this as he, as he wrestled with God. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. Just how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it has no meaning. What does that mean? <laughs> um, he's giving this idea that if we're just random and we just happen to evolve from stardust bumping into stardust and all of a sudden one day, here's a human being. You've just sort of fizzed in the direction that you became human life. You should really have no ultimate desire to make life have meaning. You just happen to randomly exist. There's nothing more valuable than you than the rock outside. It just happens that the rock outside happened to evolve in a different direction than you did. You just, you happen to be equal. You just evolved in a different way. But C.S. Lewis is saying, no, I began to recognize in my life, in the depth of my soul, my, my heart was to cry out for justice. And when you look at all of humanity, humanity cries out for a universal justice in a way. We hate it when crimes are committed against us. But when, when there's crimes committed against us, when there's injustice done against us, where do we get the sense of crying out for justice? Lest there be a divine design that put it within us. It makes no sense apart from a creator. Because without a creator, I'm just this random, meaningless existence. Yet I, I demand that my life have meaning. And if I demand my life have meaning, it must be created for that purpose. Looking for that meaning then within a creator who would be God. And C.S. Lewis then began his pursuit, which ultimately led him to, to Christ. And he's recognizing this in verse 2. There is this groaning within the soul. And it realizes that my life was intended for purpose and meaning. And where that purpose and meaning is found, that is where my life is to be submitted. Because that's where I find uh, the reason for which I exist. And while the world may try to pressure me in some sort of system, the world didn't make me. God did. And therefore, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly 
dwelling. This is why Paul, throughout his epistles, he, he continued to write things like in Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 20, I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or, or, or in Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, look, if my life is going to be about something in this world, in this world it's going to be about Jesus. And when I go, it's to, it's to gain all that I have in, in Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It's Paul recognizing, look, I I have a a, a body, but my body really doesn't belong to me. In fact, nothing we have in this world really belongs to you. It was all given to you by your creator, and we're accountable to God for all of it, including our physical bodies. And my life in Jesus has been bought for a purpose. It has been bought with a price. It's his life. Therefore, my life will be about living for his glory, his life. Glorify God with our bodies. And then he goes on and he says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And Paul's saying, look, here's what we all want to know. If we choose to walk this path, is it going to be Okay. I mean, we all go through hardships in life when we face suffering or adversity. We, we really, at the end of the day, we can, in, we can endure some incredible hardships as human beings as long as we know there's hope. Is everything going to be okay? Will it work out? And, and that was Paul's argument. Remember in, in, in Corinthians chapter 4? Verses 8, we are, uh, we, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck, struck down but, but not destroyed. Verse 16, he goes on and says, so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. If indeed by putting this on, if we walk this way in Jesus, we're not going to be found naked. Meaning those who who walk without Christ, they're going to come before God and they're going to be completely exposed. But if you put on Jesus, if you put on Jesus, you will will be secure. And then verse 4 and 5 becomes really that that rehashing of that thought again, just to expound on everything he says, a reminder to us in, in, the first, in the first three verses, what he said, for a while we are still in this tent, we groan again, being burdened. So he, get, he starts to explain what this groaning is again. So he says, for we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that we, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as, as a guarantee. So Paul's saying, look, again, we're groaning, but it's not a groaning of complaining. It's this groaning of anticipation of all that we have to come. It's our soul longing within us for the greater things that we receive with Jesus when we're with him face to face. And as a promise in all of that, God has given us his spirit as a guarantee that our lives will not be found naked, but rather clothed beautifully in him for all of eternity, that we will put aside this tent, but the home that we have in Christ is forever. 
So I, I love this because Paul, he's recognizing in life there is adversity and there is suffering. There's struggle. Because in this world, there is sin. And sin brings that sort of destruction from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Through sin became that, that path in life of, of the thorn which pricks at us. And our soul knows that this is not how things are intended to be. But do you recognize that every belief system in life, every belief system in life has to deal with adversity and suffering? I mean, even, even atheists, we all have to figure out how to approach this. And, and, and Paul's doing the same for us in this Christian life, that we have got to, to deal with this. But our position in Jesus gives us the hope to, to enter into that. But every belief system has to, to deal with it. I, I know I've often engaged with people that have wrestled with it, and they come to this conclusion, well, if there is a God as they look at the struggle of, of life in this world, they, they, they say two things. Either, either he's a wimp or he's indifferent. He doesn't care. Uh, because if he were all powerful, he would deal with it. And if he was actually good, he would deal with it, right? So the conclusion is if, if there is a God then, then, then he's either a wimp and he can't deal with it or he's indifferent to my suffering or, or not good because he hasn't dealt with it. But you know, when I think of all the responses we could give to the human struggle, realizing this world is a tent that's passing away, I think the greatest response that can be given is, is in Christianity. I mean, we, in Christianity, we have a response both experientially and theolo uh, theologically that I, I think is beautiful for us as, as we work through the struggle of this world. Uh, experientially, I, I find apart from walking in biblical truth as human beings, sometimes we can give some some awful, awful answers to people and some of the hardship they endure. Like, if you ever read that, I heard last week Lincoln referencing the book of Job. And if you ever read the book of Job in chapter 2, after all the bad things have happened to Job, chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it talks about his friends showing up and they see Job and the state that he's in and they sit down with him silently and just, just weep over the brokenness of the moment. And in, in that time, Job really enjoys being around his friends because all they're doing is just being present with him. There's really not a response they can give because the brokenness of that moment, but they want them, they want him to know they care, right? So they're, they're with Job, all, all four of his friends showing up and just being, being beside him in that moment. But then, but then they start to open their mouths and that's when they start to say dumb things. And then in chapter six, in the middle of chapter six, that's where Job says, you know, you were good friends and then you open your mouth. And now you're awful friends. So he, he, he compares them to, to several illustrations of just destructive to, to his life by, by the things they're saying. But, but we do that too as people. We get uncomfortable in pain and we start to say, we start to say dumb things, right? Like someone goes through a hard thing and they say things like, um, you know, you're going through this hard thing because, well, God knew, God knew you were strong enough to endure it. As if God's like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got so many hard things. I've got to hand out to people in life, right? And well, you look strong, so I guess you can have some, right? That's not how God operates. Or, or, or I've heard people say when someone passes away, right, they'll say, well, God, God needed them, so that's why they took them, right? And, and guys, let me just, if I can even just encourage you not to say two things, don't say those two things. Like to even suggest that God needed them for something is to suggest God's pathetic, 
Like, who is it that God is so needy that he's like, oh my gosh, there's too much to do, right? I've got to take some of these people out to help me. That is not helpful. That is not God. To speak on behalf of God that way when it's not even who God is, is dangerous, right? If you're following a God today that you think needs you in some sort of way, you're following an inadequate God. And if you have any sort of promises wrapped up in this God who is inadequate, you need to let go of those promises because he will not come through. It's important to see the sovereignty of who God is. And when we understand him in light of what Christianity explains both experientially and theologically, he is an incredible God to help us in the midst of our needs. And and I'm not saying, look, this morning, if you're going through any adversity in life that I have, I I got every specific uh, answer for you to tell you why you've gone through what you've gone through. The reality is we go go through hard things in life and and you're not going to get the answer completely as to why you went through and what you went through until you see God face to face. But Christianity still delivers hope for us. And let me just give you a few reasons why. Number one, um, I I may not always understand why things happen. But what we learn in Christianity is that God cares. And the reason we know he cares is because God entered. He entered our suffering. God became personal. He walked life as we walked. And God, in walking life as we walk, he became the servant of servants. And he demonstrated incredible compassion. There is is no belief system in the world that communicates a God so personal and compassionate as what you find in Jesus. And that's what the gospels say to us, doesn't it? I mean, every story about Christ, he enters into our suffering, he finds us in our brokenness, and he wraps his healing hands around the need, and he loves people where they're at in life. Even the point, the greatest miracle I think Jesus performs other than his death, burial, and resurrection is he resurrects his own friend Lazarus from the grave, and he tells us in those moments that even in that, that moment, Jesus still weeps. He weeps and it shows his incredible compassion and humanity towards us, which which demonstrates a God who cares. And not only does he care, we see a God who is good. Because while he cares, he also gave his life for you. He gave his life, the Bible says, even while we were enemies of Jesus. In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards you. And while you were an enemy of Christ, He died for you. I mean, he even hung on the cross when his own people had turned their backs on him. And his statement from the cross was, Father, forgive them. He washed the feet of Judas, who was about to betray him at the Last Supper. He cares. And he's good. Certainly we may feel distant at times in the struggle of life or wonder or maybe ask the question if God cares. But, but in Christianity, while we struggle with that story of our faith, um, or the, excuse me, I should say the story of our faith can't lead us to the conclusion that we have a God who is not good or a God who is indifferent or a God who lacks the sovereign authority to do something about it. Because in Jesus, what you find is a God who enters our suffering and he conquers sin, Satan, and death, which is all of our enemies. 
And why did Jesus do that? Not for himself, but for you. His intentions were for you. I remember in the last few years, we had a member of our church passing away, and they had a, a t- t- particular sickness they were dealing with, but they, they called me on the phone, and, and they just said, uh, can you read some scripture with me? I said, sure, what do you want to read? And immediately they knew where their heart wanted to go. John 14. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And Jesus knew that his life was about to, he was about to give his life on the cross and it was going to rock the life of the disciples. But he wanted his disciples to be encouraged because Jesus knew the intentions as to why he was doing what he was doing, though they didn't realize it yet. And and he says this in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. Comforting words from a God whose hand is sovereign. So when we think about the suffering in this world and we look at the, the destruction of, of sin and our soul groans within us because it's not contrary to God. God hates it too. That's why he came. He's not indifferent to that, and our soul's not indifferent to him in that struggle. In fact, it's, it's in alignment with his heart. That's why he came. And we see God be, becoming personal. So, so let me just give, give you some encouragement as we move further into this passage. Can I just encourage you with a few things? I know sometimes you may feel alone. Sometimes you may not feel like God cares. But, but there in those places, it's important to let the truth of God trump where our feelings are. And in Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says to us, I am with you always. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never forsake you. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9, his grace is sufficient for me. In my weakness, I am made strong in him. In Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eye and there will be no more pain, no more suffering when we see Jesus face to face. So then we could ask the question, well, if God is good and God is God cares. Why, why does suffering exist? And, and I'm going to remind you specifically in your life, if you're facing hardship, like sometimes giving theological answers just, it's, it doesn't suffice sometimes. Sometimes we need to show up like Job's friends in Job chapter 2 and just be present and just show our care for someone as we're, we're, going, we're going through things in life. But also there comes a time and place to understand what God says theologically about those things. Why does suffering exist? And why I can't answer every particular thing you, you, you go through in life, one day, one day God will. But in the meantime, let me remind us what God does with it. One, I think God redeems it immediately. And one of the ways God can redeem it immediately is if we're being honest with where we are in Jesus. A lot of times the only reason we really trust in God is because we came to a difficult place. When, when life is all luxury, luxurious and full of roses and comfort, like we tend to like put God on the shelf 
And then when things get hard, we're like, oh yeah, I should probably talk to God, right? Like, oh yeah, there's a God out there. And I'm going to get close to him for five seconds till things get better and then we'll just leave again, right? That, that tends to be, but, but it's in that brokenness that our heart starts to think there has to be in that groaning more to life than this. And Psalm 51 verse 17 reminds us that God instantly can redeem the struggle of life by using it to draw us to him. And in Psalm 51 verse 17, it says, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Uh, not only that, in, in James chapter two, uh, or James chapter one, verse two to four, it, it, James reminds us that in the adversity, it also gives us a place to realize how deep our faith may go in the Lord. It says, consider all joy, my brothers, when you endure various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, starting in verse 2 to 6, uh, he, he tells us that God comforts us in our struggle, that we may turn and be able to comfort others in their struggles too. That as we find God to be faithful in the adversity that we, we face, we can turn and encourage others in that same adversity. Or in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us run this race of endurance before us, having been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And what it's saying there is those, those witnesses are not witnesses of us, but rather they're witnesses to us. They have shown how their, their life was faithful in Jesus. And throughout the centuries, their faithfulness speaks to us that as they walk securely in Christ and they found their lives faithful to the end, that you can live your life the same way. And your life can be demonstrated like that, that as, as you continue to be faithful in Jesus throughout this world, that you can then turn as your life becomes a demonstration to other believers that follow after you, that God. God was always faithful to you, and God therefore can be faithful to them. And then in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And it's with this reminder, yes, God realizes, he realizes we go through hardship. And he reminds us in Romans 8 that no suffering we ever go through will be wasted. None of it. God can turn it all for good. How does he do that? The reminder for us as people is just to look to the cross. The cross becomes that symbol that reminds us that the darkest day in all of history has now become the symbol of hope for God's people. If God could take the despised cross of the first century, and turn it into the emblem that God's people would use to celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. God can do mighty things in your life too. And if he can turn that day in history into the day of celebration for his people, he can take the struggle of your life and work it together for good for all of eternity. Nothing you endure as God's people will ever, ever be wasted. Point number two, I should move on. <laughs> I'll do these last two points very quickly. <laughs> no. No, we can live with courage because our future hope is secure. We can live with courage because our future hope is secure. It's important to remain focused on that future. You know, some of us may ask the question, as, as God walks with me through the battle, it's hard. It's hard because I want God to resolve it immediately. And I know God's heart. God's heart is to want to resolve the struggle 
and the brokenness of sin in this world. That is God's heart too. Right? And we could ask the question within, why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he do that? And I think 2 Peter 3.9 gives us the answer. I'm going to read further in this passage in a minute. But 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is long-suffering towards us, not willing any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so here's the reality. If God were to come and judge all things broken, everything sinful and destructive, God will also with that judge humanity. And the truth, truth is, <laughs> we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And what Peter's saying in 2 Peter 3, 9 is that God is long-suffering, not willing any perish, all come to repentance. He's saying God is holding back that judgment, though God's desire is to judge sin and the destruction it brings. God is holding back that judgment to give us opportunity to turn to him, which is why we as God's people now living in this world need to remain fixed on what we ultimately have in Jesus because we realize we're walking in a world that's broken. But the hope that we have to deliver in Christ is so important because it lets us shed the tent of the things of this world to ultimately rest in the confidence of what we have in Jesus because it is ours and it is a house and it will endure. And so therefore, knowing that that's true, we can live with courage because our future is secure. And so he says this in verse six, right? So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Like we would rather be in that place with Jesus, but God's got a mission that he's called us to in the brokenness of this world, just as he walked in this world with compassion towards the brokenness of things. But knowing that what we have in Christ is not passing away like the things of this world, what it does for us as people is it gives us a place to rest into his sovereignty and his security so that whatever intimidation the world might throw at you, you can be courageous because you know that whatever they want to throw, it's not going to last anyway. Whatever someone wants to hold over, over your head and whatever pressure they want to put on your life, it's not going to endure. And so we live, we live courageously. He says it right at the end of verse 6. We know, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The temptation of the things that can physically be put before us in this world, we don't have to give a second thought to because of what we ultimately have by faith securely in Jesus. Guys, it's important for us that we remind ourselves of our faith because it provides for us a perspective in light of the things in this world. So many people in life like to react to the drama that's right in front of them all the time, right? Wait for the next fuse to, to light in front of you, and all of a sudden we got to get dramatic about it. It's like, do you know um, what the news operates on in our world? Fear. Because you know what drives you? Not you, you're good. But the rest of the world? Fear and intimidation. You better conform or it's all going to fall apart, right? This is who you have to be. Like, I think one of the best things God's people can do is just turn off the television. Stop watching the news. It's garbage. It's just driving you with fear rather than faith. 
What God wants us to be focused on is not the drama of the immediate. Like I have this, I have this friend that comes to me quite often. He's saying, he talks about um, hypersonic missiles. Do you know Russia has hypersonic missiles? And all the doomsday, he likes to bring up the book of Revelation. It's over, man. Let's build a bunker. And I say to him every time, I grab him, I look him in the face. And I'm like, look, I don't care if everyone in life is a Christian. I, I don't care if no one in life is a Christian. Tomorrow when I wake up, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live for Jesus. And do you know why? I don't want to live for the drama. I don't care. I know who I am in Christ. And I just want to live to please him. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but, but Christ who lives in me. My body has been bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We can live with courage because our future is secure. So here's the result then. Here's the result, verse nine. Then if, if this is where we let our mind go, our faith live, where we step in light of that, he says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's, that's the, the answer, the response then that we give to what we should know. We make it our aim to please him. This is what we live our life in, in light of that. And he says why. We make it our aim to please them. Here's why. If you think of all the people you've got to answer to, it's not the world, but rather verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're going to all meet God face to face one day. And as we said previously, we don't want to be unclothed naked, but we want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ by embracing Jesus and, and walking in him. I mean, you study this, this passage of Scripture. He's saying to us, look, I, I know we can read, read this. Um, and we, we read the word judgment, and we have this visceral reaction to it. Ugh, judge, right? We will start quoting things that we think are in the Bible. Thou, thou shalt not judge, right? <laughs> like, and, uh, and I want you to know, um, that's stupid, all right? Like, um, you should judge. Now, I want to be careful in how I say that because, because when we talk in terms of judgment, we need to be careful in what kind of judgment we're discussing here. Um, judging another human being as if we're devaluing them, that's sinful, that's wrong. Every human being is made in the image of God and, and is worthy of dignity and respect because they are image bearers of God. Right, so we're not judging people in order to devalue them, but God certainly wants you to judge in the sense that you need to discern what's wise and what's not. And sometimes we read the word judgment. We look at this, we're like, God, you know, thou shalt not judge. You should not judge us, right? But, but I, I want you to know judgment is so important. Judgment is so important, and especially for, for your future. And when you think about judgment, the reason we, we sort of step back from there, we're like, ah, and it sobers us up a little bit. We need to recognize that we will have a judgment before God. But the reason we step back from that is it's, it's powerful and it can, it can dominate over you. And we may not like that, right? We don't, we don't want anybody to have that sort of authority over us. So we're just like, ah, oh, don't judge, right? But if you're on the good side of judgment, it's so important. Because this is what can make you confident in the sovereignty and security that you have in God. If someone is judging and it's judgment against you, that's bad. But if someone is judging in order for your well-being, that's good. So I gave you an illustration like this. Um, 
And you think about electricity, you may walk up to some sort of unit that's got high voltage and see a sign like this, you touch, you die, right? That's the point I want you to know. Dangerous, right? That sort of judgment coming upon me, it's dangerous. When you think about God's judgment, it's certainly saying in this passage, there is danger to it. But power isn't, when we think about judgment being powerful, that power isn't, doesn't always have to be bad. It, it's, it's just a matter of how it's used. And I tell my, my kids regularly, my boys, guys, God made you strong. And if you use that strength selfishly, it will destroy the world. But if you use that strength selflessly, it will bless the world. And when you think of God's power, yes, it's sobering. And yes, it's dangerous. But that danger, that power, is intended to be for you, not against you. That's why in this passage when it talks about the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, the word there is actually the bema seat of Christ. And the bema seat of Christ was used as a picture during the Olympic Games. They would run in, in Corinth or the Corinthian Games. And when someone would run a race, if they were victorious, they would hand out from the bema seat rewards. And that's the, kind of the picture it paints for us as believers in Jesus as we live in faith in him. God's danger for us doesn't become this place to run and cower from and be afraid of, but to see it as a conduit of protection for God's people. Because while electricity may be dangerous if you run up and touch it, if, if it's channeled the right way, it also breathes life and light. And the things, same thing's true with, with God's power. That for you in Jesus, it becomes the source of life and light as you rest in him. That power is for you. It's what protects you. It's why all things work together for good. And last, I just want to point this out to you as, as we close here. But, and I hope you saw this. As, as Paul went through this passage, guys, as we think how we live in light of the pressure of this world, not to be bullied, but to live courageously, that Paul reminded us over and over that we're to do this as a community together. God did not create us to live as islands to ourselves, But to understand as we battle in this world that we need one another to support each other. To remind ourselves of the truths that Paul shares here. And mental health, mental health is an important part of your life. And as it says in this passage that within all of us, we have this sort of groaning in the tension of the world that we walk in. And investing in community in order to encourage one another is so important. And Paul perpetuated this thought over and over that we not live as an island to ourselves, but we see the importance of gathering together like this and taking time to invest in one another and talk to each other and encourage each other because there is a struggle in the world around us. And we need reminded Satan loves nothing more to get us on an island ourselves and, and pick us off. But we need each other to be faithful, uh, faithful to this. So let me close with this last illustration. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the story of Atlas, but Atlas did some bad things and made God Zeus mad. God Zeus mad said, your punishment, Atlas, is you're going to have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders for the rest of your existence, which is bad, I think, because Atlas is immortal, which means forever. And so while he carries the weight of the world, he was also holding up, as, as Greek mythology says, the heavens within. So every time you see, there's statues of Atlas everywhere, but the pressure of the world is on him. As the reality is, for us, sometimes we live life like this too. 
And this is, this is one way to live life. Everything that the world is and all that it says, it just wants you to bear that. You become everything that people want you to be and you try to please all people and the weight of the world is on your shoulders. You know what's interesting? This, this picture on the, the, the left, I think it's your left, yeah, the picture on, on the left, this picture of Atlas is right outside the um, General Electric building in New York City on Fifth Avenue. And just across that street is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And in St. Patrick's Cathedral, there is this, this statue of Jesus about seven, eight years old. And in Jesus' hands, there is the world. And he's holding it like it's nothing. <laughs> and I say all that to say, you know, we have a choice. We can carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. Or we can recognize that that's not what God created us for. He made us for so much more. And it's not about our sovereign hands bearing it. But it's about us entrusting to him our world and saying, God, whatever it is you desire, I am yours. I have no idea if they put a statue of little baby Jesus uh, across the street intentionally. But I think it's such a beautiful contrasting picture between two different worldviews. Take all the pressures that the world wants me to be and try to walk in their convictions or let it all go for Jesus and step securely, confidently in him. Guys, I know we know what the right choice is, but my prayer for us this morning is that we'll walk out faithfully, continuing to turn it over and what he desires for us. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.